We're going to look at Matthew chapter 10. We'll actually start reading in chapter 9, Matthew chapter 10. I heard about a guy that was awakened at 3 o'clock in the morning by a loud pounding on his door. <clears throat> and he got up reluctantly and went to the door and opened the door and there's a drunk there. He said, hey, I need a push. And he said, a push? It's 3 in the morning. Leave us alone. And shut the door and went back to bed. And his wife said, who is that? He said, well, just some drunk wanting to push. Did you help him, she asked. He said, no, I didn't. It's three in the morning and it's pouring down rain. She said, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. Remember a while back when those two guys helped us when we were broken down? So he gets up, he puts his clothes on, he goes back to the door, opens the door, goes out on the porch, says, are you out there? Hello? And he hears a voice, yes, I am. He said, do you still need a push? I sure do. He said, where are you? He said, I'm on the swing. <laughs> oh, well, we all need a laugh. Um, <clears throat> we're looking at Matthew. Let's, let's stand and read one verse from chapter 9. As you know, <clears throat> chapter divisions weren't in the Bible. You know that. You're smart people. So we're going to read chapter 9 in verse 30, verses 37 and 38. Jesus, of course, is speaking, he's teaching and preaching, and he said, Then saith he unto his disciples, The harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers unto his harvest. Let's ask God to bless us as we take a look in the book for a walk in the world. Uh, Daniel, you want to lead us? Amen. Thank you. you. May be seated. Actually, we're looking at the first 16 verses of Matthew chapter 10, but the next verse after what we just read is verse 1, where he says to his disciples, who he now will commission and they'll become apostles, he says, and when he had called on him his 12 disciples, he gave them power against unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal all manners of sickness and all manners of disease. So here now he's going to begin to commission the 12. And we know that Matthew is one of our synoptic gospels. Remember, three gospels that see things together. And only 42% of Matthew is unique. The rest is all repeated in Mark and Luke. And that's why we try to always see those together and compare passages. A good thing for you to purchase would be a chronological Bible sometime. And they'll have the passages that are together and each one of them all together where you can compare. But Matthew is one of those gospels. Now, remember, Matthew, of course was a Jew writing to Jews about the coming kingdom. We'll see that in this text. He cites the Old Testament a whole lot. He quotes constantly messianic passages. Uh, some believe he wrote this. In fact, there are fragments and people talk about the fact that he probably wrote this in two languages. Greek is what we have here, but they think he also wrote it in Hebrew. There are godly conservative scholars that believe that. I thought that was interesting reading. But he was a tax collector also known as what? A publican. And so he was despised by a lot of people, but he came to know the Lord, followed the Lord, and he had a banquet inviting all his co-workers, his friends, to his house. 
And as we said, the context begins in chapter 9. Jesus is preaching and teaching. He was a rabbi, of course. He would, he would teach, he would preach, he would evangelize. And he is uh, talking about <clears throat> the, the gospel. And he's telling the disciples in verses 37 and 38 to pray for laborers. And then he turns right around. We don't know the time in between uh, when he tells them to pray for laborers and the amount of time that transpired before he said, now I'm empowering you. But we find he does that right away in the first four verses. He empowers the 12. Now, Jesus was our first medical missionary, wasn't he? And he could heal. He would raise dead people. And now he gives the uh, apostles, the disciples are now going to become apostles as a commission and sent. And that technically wouldn't be apostles for a little bit longer, but he's commissioning these guys to go and preach the gospel of the kingdom. And we talked about this on a Wednesday night, how that uh, Matthew came and John the Baptist, Matthew wrote and John the Baptist came and preached the gospel of the coming kingdom. He said, behold, the kingdom's at, ha at hand. And then he introduced Jesus Christ. And we're going to see that now here in this chapter. We pick up in, in verse... Um, Verses 5 and following. Now, let me just pause here for a moment. Let's, let's go, first of all, over to Acts chapter 1. I apologize. I want to mention something about the apostles before we go any further. Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. He's empowering the 12. And the word here is not the normal word dynamite. It's the word here, authority. He's authorizing them uh, to have authority. He does that in Matthew chapter at 28, he says, all power, meaning all authority is given to you to preach the gospel and to go into all the world. And then in Acts 1.8, he empowers them in a different way. He says, all power, that's our word dynamite, is given unto you. So God gives us the authority and the power of the Holy Spirit to do his work. And so here we find him now commissioning these guys. And I want to just mention a word about the apostles here. In chapter 1 of Acts, verse 22, Beginning from the baptism of John, remember Acts 19 tells us that John came to the people at Ephesus and says, have you been baptized since, you know, uh, since the Calvary, since the Lord died and so forth? And they said, no, he said, you need to be rebaptized. And they were all rebaptized because they weren't baptized into the local church. Baptism prior to that was a baptism accepting the kingdom. You can read that later in Acts chapter 19. So Paul has them rebaptized. But here we find, uh, beginning from the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from, um, from among us, taken up from us, must one be ordained to be a witness with us of his resurrection. They're looking for Matthias. Of course, they're not looking for Matthias, but they use Matthias to replace Judas. They're looking for a replacement. And they say one of the requirements of that replacement must be what? To have seen the resurrected Christ. Now, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Paul is defending his apostleship. You don't want to turn there. I'm already there. But 9.1 says, Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Of course, the Damascus Road experience. So one of the requirements for the apostles were to have, they had to have seen the resurrected Christ. Pardon me. They had to have seen the resurrected Christ. There are no apostles today. While we may be followers of the Lord, disciples, and we may be called into ministry, we're all called to preach the gospel. Did you know that? Every one of us here is called to preach the gospel. 
Not all of us are called to be pastors, but we're called to preach the gospel. But one of the requirements for the apostles were, was to have seen the resurrected Christ. They also uh, had to be exhorted by Christ to be leaders, and they also had to be empowered with gifts. In Acts chapter 5, they had to be empowered with gifts. Looks at Acts chapter 5, verse 15 and 16. This is important that we recognize what Scripture teaches. Acts 5, 15 and 16. It says here in Acts 5, 15 and 16, insomuch that they brought forth the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and couches that at the least the shadow of Peter passing by might overshadow some of them. So they got as close as they could. And there came also a multitude of the, out of the cities round about unto Jerusalem bringing sick folk, sick folks, and them which were vexed with unclean spirits and they were healed. What are the next two words? Every one of them. They're bringing people from cities all around. I don't know if it's hundreds or thousands. I guess their imagination could do the work there. But just people pouring in. And every last one of them is healed. Now I've said that Jesus Christ was the first medical missionary. He's the great physician. But he empowered these twelve. In two different ways. He gave them authority and supernatural power to heal people. And they healed every one of them. That's fascinating to me. Because today we have people who still think they are apostles. They believe in what they call apostolic successionism. That they're apostles, you know, because they're saved. But clearly scripture says you have to have seen the resurrected Christ to be an apostle. God still heals. But a lot of this faith healing stuff today, we know we have to question it in light of scripture. While I have been part of people being healed, all right, and up in Saudi Daisy, we had a gentleman who had cancer, Kenneth Burroughs. He came forward, and he asked for us to pray for him, and we laid hands on him. We prayed, and so forth, and you know what? Two weeks later, he stood up and said, the doctors don't know what happened, but God healed me of cancer. So I'm not saying God doesn't heal, and I'm not saying we shouldn't follow the protocol given in the book of James to lay hands on people. The aged men of the church, the elders, the leadership to pray with people for healing. Yes, we should do that. So I'm not making light of that. But we find that apostolic power gave them the ability, the power and the authority by God to heal every one of them. Think of that. When God told them to heal and God led them to heal a person, that person was healed. You don't find anyone turned away. And you never find in Scripture this stuff where they're hitting them on the head and they're falling backwards and shaking them. You don't find any of that in the Bible. We'll look more at that later because that's not the point of my message. But we now, now we drop down here into verses 2 and following. They were named in pairs back in Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10, yes, verse, verses 2 through 4, they were named in pairs. Mark 6 tells us that they were sent out two by two. Isn't that interesting? Two by two, they were sent out. Here they're named that way. It says Peter and Andrew, which was his brother, and James and John, the sons of Zebedee. And all these names have meanings. Uh, we're not going to get into all that now. We know Nathaniel meant there's no guile and Peter meant rock, but all of them had name, meanings of their names. And God often supernaturally intervened in naming your children. Could you imagine that? Read the Old Testament all the times God said, here's the name that you're going to give your child. Abraham, Abram, you're going to be called Abraham. And Sarah, Sarah, you're going to be called Sarah. 
And Peter, you're going to be the rock. And so we find divine intervention oftentimes. So it's good to study the name means we just don't have the time this morning. Uh, then we look here, picking up in verse 6. These 12 Jesus sent forth. Now the word apostle means sent forth. So now they're starting to become the apostles. They're empowered. They're sent. They're not given the great commission yet. That's in the end of the book. Remember in the upper room? In the end of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the beginning of Acts, we know that's also mentioned. But the Great Commission is given five times. And Peter is always listed first in these lists. But here, now he sends them out. And look what he says, a fascinating thing. It's not the Great Commission. He says, go not into the way of the Gentiles and into any city of the Samaritans. Enter you not. He says, don't go to the Gentiles. Don't go to the Samaritans. The Samaritans were half Assyrian, half Jew. They hated the Jews because the Jews wouldn't let them work on the temple. The Jews hated them because they weren't full Jew. And so they had a real conflict. Remember, Jesus said to his disciples, I'm, I must go through Samaria. And that's where he went, met the Samaritan woman at the well. What a great story. But here he says, don't go to the Samaritans. Don't go to Samaria. Don't go to the Gentiles. Verse 6, he tells them what to do. But go rather to the lost sheep of what? The house of Israel. To the Jew first. And eventually to the Gentile. But right now the commission is urgent. Why? Jesus is coming. John's introduced him as king. And Jesus, of course, is going to usher in the kingdom if they accept him. But we know the rest of the story. The nation of Israel rejects the Lord. Some Jews followed him. Here are, you know, 11 of them. One was not a Jew. But 11 Jews follow him. But not the whole nation. They rejected him. Of course, he'll have to die for sin. We know God's providential plan. I'm so thankful that Gentiles were later grafted in. I'm so grateful and thankful that the Great Commission was given to reach people in all nations of all the world, all peoples. But here he says, no, he says, go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Israel was considered lost in at least two ways. Number one, they were scattered. They're called the lost tribes of Israel in many passages. They were scattered because of persecution. Babylon came. They ran and were scattered and deported and carried away. The Medes and the Persians, the Greeks, and now the Romans. So Jews were in a hundred and something countries at this time. In fact, in 48, they came from 106 countries back to Israel. So they're lost in that they're scattered. They're also lost spiritually. You see, without Jesus Christ, a Jew will go to hell just like a Gentile. God's not a respecter of persons. And, and without Christ, you'll perish. And not, we're not saying by talking about the, the commission here that God wouldn't save anyone else because he'd already saved Rahab way back in the Old Testament. He's always saved Gentiles that came to him and repented of their sins. So he's, but the commission here is urgent. He said, go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Clearly the commission is, he says, don't go to the Samaritans. Don't go to the Gentiles. Go to the last lost sheep. Now look at chapter 11, just to point out something. Chapter 11, verses 11 and 14. Verily I say unto you, among them that are born of women, there is not risen a greater than John the Baptist, notwithstanding that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. He's mentioning John the Baptist. Verse 14. And if you will receive it, this is Elijah, which was for to come. So had they received John and John's message, God was going to usher in the kingdom. 
We don't know if it's at this exact time, but this is the decision time for the nation of Israel. Are you going to accept him? Are you going to accept him as Messiah? Are you going to accept him as king? And we know what happens because shortly after the Great Commission is given to the 70 and then to the 12 to go and reach everyone in the world. But we go back now to verse 7. Or let's, let's go back to verse 9, chapter 9, one page before. I want to point out a couple of things. Chapter 9, Jesus says the same thing in chapter 9, verse 35. And Jesus went about all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing the sickness and every disease among the people. Go back to chapter 4. Chapter 4. And this is a good verse. You ought to mark it in your Bible. 417. 417. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What does that mean, at hand? Very close. Right about to, you know, be part of this world. The kingdom of heaven is here. It's about to be ushered in. So he's wanting them to be urgent about this message of the commission to Israel, the commission to reach Israel. Now go back to Matthew chapter 10. Notice what he tells them here. This is different than what he tells us in Philippians chapter 4. You know, we're taught throughout Scripture that we're to count the cost, plan, prepare. When we went to the mission field, I remember we sold our little trailer and Tree and Sky Mobile Home Park. We got rid of all our stuff, and then we began to ship some things we needed to ship. We got all these plans and preparations to travel and did all this stuff, and then we went. But notice the difference here. He says in verse 7, As you go preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand, heal the sick, heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out devils, freely have received, freely what? Yeah, so they were healing without getting an offering. That's interesting. That's not part of what I was going to say. But he says here several things, four things. He says, heal the sick. Our word therapy comes from this word, heal, heal the sick. Then he says, cleanse the lepers. That's our word catheter. You know, can you imagine you're healing lepers in a day when people were afraid of lepers? Raise the dead. In Mark chapter 16, they were told that you could drink any deadly thing and it wouldn't even harm you. Now, I wouldn't drink a bottle of arsenic. I'd be dead. But they had that kind of power, the commissioning of the apostles, to drink anything and it wouldn't harm them. And notice it says, raise the dead. Isn't that fascinating? That was the commission to the apostles. Look over in 1 Corinthians 1, 22, back uh, to 1 Corinthians, and then we'll look back at Matthew in a moment. I know we're looking at a lot of scriptures, but I will lay the foundation for what I'm going to say here. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22. Notice what Paul says here under the inspiration of God. When I say Paul said, we always know it's inspired, right? It's still the word of God. For the Jews require a sign and the Greeks seek after wisdom. You know how Gentiles are saved? By faith. Did you know that? We have to be saved by faith. We don't require a sign. Study the history of Israel. Moses said, how are they going to believe me? The Lord said, you know that rod in your hand? Throw it down. It became a serpent. He said, I'll give you signs. Elijah, and Elisha had signs. In the tribulation period, the two witnesses come back, there'll be great signs. One of them will be they'll raise back from the dead after laying. They're dead for three days. And Jews require a sign. But Gentiles have always believed by faith. 
Isn't that great? We can be saved by faith. We don't need a sign. It didn't take a miracle for me to get saved. I've had miracles in my life, but I didn't have to see some visible sign, some manifestation from God. I didn't see my name written in the sky. You know, I didn't have some supernatural thing happen on the outside, but one happened on the inside. And I was saved by faith in Jesus Christ. Simple faith. And that's what we need to preach. Salvation by faith. Plus nothing, minus nothing. It's all we need is faith in the Lord and what he's already done. But 1 Corinthians 1.22, we read that the Jews required a sign. Now back in Matthew chapter 12, look at Matthew 12.38. Then certain of the scribes and the Pharisees answered saying, Master, would we, we would see a sign. We, we want to see a sign, Lord. Can you give us a sign? Of course, the Lord was done with that generation. He said, I'll give you a sign. In a parallel passage, he says, Moses, I mean, not Moses, Jonah. Jonah, as Jonah was in the belly of the whale, that, that'll be the sign. And then, of course, he fulfills that at Calvary. Like Jonah was in the belly of the whale three days, he was in the ground three days and came back alive. So that's the sign from, from that point on. And so he uh, is challenging the disciples to do all these things, cast out devils, uh, raise the dead, and do it all freely, freely. Isn't that awesome? Free. It's free. Too much money in ministry today, I'm afraid. There's a show on, it, it really agitates me. I'm not going to name the person I believe he's saved, but his whole show is about raising money. And you know what his whole ministry is? Raising money. The show is about raising money, and then you give to the ministry, and that pays for the program so he can raise more money. And people don't get saved, and, and he lives a great life. And I'm thinking, you know, we ought to tithe and all that. But I tell you, when all we talk about is money, 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 and pastors live lives different from the lives of the people in the pew, there's something wrong in churches today. We need to be more concerned about souls and, and, and the work of God than, than the money of man. But here in verse 9, back to verse 9, look what he says. This is, this is what... Shocks me almost, but I mean, I've been preaching and reading scripture for a long time, and I know it's here, but it's just amazing because he says, provide neither gold nor silver nor brass in your purses. Don't carry any money. It's urgent. The kingdom's at hand. Don't carry any money. Then look what he says. Nor script, that's a purse or a bag for your journey, neither an extra coat, no, neither two coats, neither shoes, extra shoes, if they had sandals on, just go. Nor staves, that's translated rods and staffs elsewhere in your Bible, so don't carry. And now in Mark, he said, if you already have a stave or a staff, you can carry it. But don't carry anything with you. Don't go home and pack. Don't plan. Go. Go. Look what he says. Don't carry any of that. For the workman is worthy of his meat. And into whatever city or town you shall enter, inquire who is worthy. And there abide till you go fence. So he said, you're going to be taken care of by other people. Don't take anything. Can you imagine going on a trip without any money? One time we were home on a furlough and a church gave us a big offering. We were thrilled. We got on an airplane and we left the offering in the <laughs> compartment above in a bag. And we were headed to our next plane flight and we thought, where's our bag? The one bag we left, full of that money. We had to go back. Fortunately, they were still cleaning out the plane and they found our bag and we were like, it was th several thousand dollars. Don't know where it is now, spent, long spent, but 
I was like in a panic mode. I was sweating. I'm thinking we can't afford to lose that. But can you imagine being told, go to the mission field. Don't take anything with you. Not even any money. Don't even carry a wallet. Just go. The kingdom's at hand. It's urgent. Get out there and reach people with the gospel. Tell the Jews they need to accept Jesus as Messiah. That's the urgency. That's amazing to me to be sent out like that. But now we do know that in the church epistles and later, they're told to count the cost and prepare for the journey. Complete different commission. But here there's an urgency. And uh, don't carry anything. Then in verse 11, notice he says, inquire who in, in the city is worthy. It's a great word, worthy. John said, I'm not worthy to carry his sandals. Scripture says, worthy is the lamb. So many times we find that you, we're, we're, we're supposed to be worthy, consider ourselves worthy to be able to suffer for the Lord. It's a great word. It's found 45 times in the New Testament. And here it has to do with someone with hospitality. Now think of this in the early church. You had these traveling preachers, and even after this, Paul and them did get offerings. We know in Philippians, he said, thanks again for the offerings and so forth. They were prepared. They tried to prepare and so forth. But they were still dependent on the hospitality of people in the city who they had never met. So hospitality. We know in Romans chapter 8, hospitality is listed as a spiritual gift. Romans 12, excuse me, verse 13. Look at... Uh, Hebrews 13, if you will. Hebrews chapter 13. In Romans 12, 13, it says they were given gifts, the gift of hospitality. We're not turning to Romans, though we're turning to Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1. The same Greek word is translated here in Hebrews chapter 12. As I said, get your strong concordance. You can look these things up. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1. 13, 1, not 12, 1. I love 12, but that's not where. Let brotherly love continue. Verse 2 is the verse. Be not forgetful to what? Entertain strangers. Now, I'm not advocating, ladies, that you let some stranger come to your door today and come in. It's not what I'm saying. But here, the early church, the gift of hospitality, the word meant entertain strangers. Because preachers would come and come to the city, and when you heard they were coming... You'd, you'd make sure to meet them and greet them and let, you, let them know, my house is where you're going to stay. And that's what's fascinating to me, the word worthy. The word worthy. And, and that word's a great word. And we know that it has to do with being deserving. I'm not deserving enough to carry the Lord's sandals. Are you? Amen. You're not either. <laughs> it means to be deserving. So hospitality was a spiritual gift. We know in Romans it's mentioned chapter 3. Uh, Romans, we already said that. Then it's mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, listed as one of the gifts. So, are you worthy to be gifted in the area of hospitality? My mother-in-law was worthy. She would have 40 GIs in her house every Sunday after church and feed them all. Sometimes 50. And they would sleep on weekends. I'd get up when, when I was over there spending the weekend. Before we started our church, I'd have to step over bodies laying all over the floor of these GIs sleeping in the living room of Brother Al Sly and Norma's house. She loved it. She thrived on it. I'm not given that gift. 
my, my gifts are different. But she was worthy to be hospitable. To be worthy, to be deserving to have that gift. You see, to some people, to have a preacher you don't know come to stay in your house, it'd be stressful. It'd be pressure. I don't know what I'm going to do. The house is in a mess. You know, and they've got, why did you invite this guy? Why is he coming here? Whose idea was this? This is what we go through if we don't have the gift. But if you were given the gift of hospitality, you would consider yourself really blessed to have someone in your home and take care of them. And they would stay the whole time they were there starting churches or whatever they had to do, they would stay in these homes. So hospitality was really a special gift and you had to be deserving for God to have given you that gift and you would have to use it for his glory. And if you have that gift today, then have people in your home and you'll be a blessing to them. It'll be a blessing to you. When you're not exercising your spiritual gift, you're miserable. When you are, you're fulfilled. I know what my gifts are, and I'm not preaching and teaching the word. I'm a miserable guy. I get so much joy out of preaching and teaching. Always have. I know it's my calling. I know it, my gifts are related to that, and I just love it. I'm not saying everybody loves you to listen to me, but I love preaching and teaching. It's what God's called me to do, and it's a privilege. I don't feel worthy. God somehow called me. So anyway, verse 12, back in our text, entertaining strangers, back in our text, verse 12. And when you come to a house, salute it. Now that word's translated several different ways, but you know it means to greet, to uh, be respectful in your greeting, to uh, acknowledge them. And if the house be worthy, there it is again, several times in this text. Let your peace come upon it, but if it be not worthy, let your peace return to you. In other words, be a blessing to them, offer them a blessing. But if, if they're not welcoming of you, then take back the blessing. And I, I don't know all the different customs I've read and read and studied this, believe me, and I don't know what this would entail. But there's no doubt that if they weren't receiving of the traveling preacher or evangelist or church planner or the apostle, then they would not be blessed. If they received them, they'd be blessed. If they're worthy, and whosoever shall not receive you nor hear your words when you depart out of that house or city, shake the dust off your feet. Now the scribes taught dust was defilement. So you don't want anything defiling, so you shake it off your feet. It's symbolic to say, if they don't receive you, if they're not hospitable, you're shaking the dust off is symbolic of saying, I don't want anything to do with you. It's kind of a powerful statement. And look what he says in this next verse. Verily I say unto you, it is more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in that day of judgment than that for that city. Let me tell you something. When we preach the word of God, it makes everyone accountable that has heard the message. And people who refuse to listen are going to be accountable for that fact. Now, I'm told in Hebrews chapter 12, when I preach, I better rightly divide, because I'm going to be accountable for everything I say. But the listener's also accountable. And those that reject the word of God and re reject God's messenger are accountable. If I go to a door and I say, I'm the pastor of Union Fork, I'd like to invite you to our church, and they slam the door in my face, they're going to be accountable. They've rejected God's messenger. That's clearly what the text says. And it says it's worse off for them than it would be to be from Sodom. 
Now you think of sodomy. Rejecting the Lord is the worst of sins. And for people who have heard the word over and over and over and over in Rossville, Georgia, they're going to be much more accountable than the sodomites were. Look at the next chapter, chapter 11. Verse 21. Woe unto Chorazin in Bethsaida. These are right, his, right in his home area there. For if the mighty works which were done, in, which were done in you, had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have departed long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say unto you, it should be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the day of judgment than for you. What's he saying? Think of the people who lived close to Jesus and saw his works and rejected him. It's worse for them than for the people of Sidon and Tyre. Think of that. Think of that. And for people in the Bible Belt of America, I'm afraid to tell you this. If you've heard the gospel over and over and over and rejected the Lord Jesus Christ, it's worse for you than it would be for the people of Sodom. That's a scary thought. There's accountability, folks, not just for the preachers but for the listeners. Amen? Amen? Now, we go back to our text and we know that the next section talks about all these terrible things. I mean, we talked about distress last week and how the pressure from all sides, that word stenosis. And, we, and here, here the text talks about all kinds of trials that they will experience. The apostles would experience trials. They would, have, they would confront sheep in wolves' clothing, scourging. Families would turn against families and death. And I want you to think about this now. Of the 12, and including Matthias, the replacement of those disciples, only one didn't die a violent death, and that was John, who lived to be an old age. Only one. Judas wasn't martyred. He went out and hung himself and slammed him in the cliffs, and his guts came out, the Bible tells us. But think of the other 11, including Matthias. I've written down, this, listen to this just for a moment. Matthias was stoned and beheaded in 80 AD in Jerusalem. Simon Peter was crucified. They say he chose to be crucified upside down in 74 AD in Rome. Andrew was crucified on a cross shaped in an axe in Greece 60 years AD. James, the son of Zebedee, was beheaded with a sword in AD 44 in Jerusalem. Philip was crucified in Turkey. And we're not sure of the date. Bartholomew, also called Nathaniel, was beaten and crucified in Armenia. We don't know the date, but crucified. Thomas was thrust through with a spear in India in 72 AD. Matthew died by dagger in Ethiopia in 60 AD. James had his brains bashed out with a club in 62 AD in Jerusalem. Thaddeus, Lebius, Jude, all the same person, was crucified in Turkey in AD 72. Simon the Zealot was crucified in an unknown place. Think of that. You read the next several verses we're not going to look at today. And these people had to bear a cross. We simply wear a cross. They had to bear one. We're told to carry our cross. We're told to suffer. But we don't even witness. We don't even count the cost. We have plenty of time to prepare. I mean, we can plan and have programs and prepare and all that. But guess what? 
there's still an urgency today. When we see this virus as church people, we should realize that we are closer to the Lord's coming. John was looking for the Lord's coming 2,000 years ago, as was Paul. And they worked as though he were coming today. And the Bible tells us to work while it's daylight because the night is soon coming when we can't work. We're still free to witness. I know we have to be careful with the virus, but you can witness to people six to ten feet away and you can tell them Jesus loves them and died for them. And the commission is given to us and guess what? There's an urgency. There's an urgency. We put everything first. It's not just about planning to go to the mission field and preparing and selling your stuff and packing your stuff. We put everything ahead of the gospel. Everything ahead of witnessing. We, if we find time to fit it in, we may witness to somebody. And folks, that's wrong. God still wants laborers to go to the harvest. And the harvest is still white. It's still ready. It's still ripe. We need to pick the fruit of the harvest. We need to reach people with the gospel. The commission today, we call it the Great Commission. In Matthew, he says, go to all nations. Don't, don't exclude the Gentiles or the Samaritans. Go to all nations. In Mark, every creature. In Luke, the gospel, the repentance should repeat, be preached to all nations. And John says, as, as Jesus says, as the Father sent me, so send I you. And Acts says, go into Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. And I'll empower you to do that. The gospel's still urgent. People need the Lord. When will we realize people need the Lord? And if they reject you, the Bible says just leave and you can shake the dust off your feet if you want to. You have to realize that when they reject the message of Jesus Christ, they'll answer for that. So rather than thinking, well, he'll get his, you should be broken and say, that's sad. That person will probably go to hell. That's sad. People will talk about anything with you, but when you talk about Jesus, boy, they get in a conviction. They don't want to talk about that anymore. We need to fulfill the commission, folks. The great commission has been given to every last one of us. I joke and say we do need women preachers. Women aren't called to be pastors but we're all called to preach the gospel, amen? Some of the greatest witnesses I know have been women. In fact, if you study the history of modern missions, guess who the first missionaries were, amen? We know, not, besides, besides the famous ones we hear, we've got the ones that went because they didn't have a husband to go. They went as single missionaries to reach people with the gospel, and then later a church would be established. But thank God for those pioneer women missionaries. I know who the father of modern missions, I know all that stuff, but women have always been important. And some of the greatest witnesses in our church today are women. Some of the greatest witnesses in our church today are children who invite their friends to Sunday school. We're all given the commission to preach the gospel to every creature. And folks, there's an urgency today. Urgency. Let's pray. God, thank you.